Hello and welcome to another episode of Yes, That Really Did Happen. Today we're going to look at the amazing flight, and more importantly, the amazing landing of Air Canada Flight 143, also known as the Gimli Glider. We're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Gimli Glider. And this seemed like a really good topic to cover. So let's start off with what kind of aircraft was the Gimli Glider? The aircraft was a Boeing 767. This happened in July, July 23rd, 1983. And the 767 did not enter service until September 8th, 1982. So it was just over a year in service. Air Canada had not really started getting their 737s until late in 82, early in 83. And so this was a very, very new airplane. This is all important. (laughs) Okay. This is all important because there were quite a few errors that led up to the incident. Now, of course, we should lead off with nobody was seriously injured and everybody survived. There was no horrific air crash or anything of that nature. This really shows off what very skilled pilots can do with a little bit of luck on their side. So the 767 was a brand new aircraft at this time. Nowadays, the 767, which is still in production, is seen as an everyday aircraft. Reliable. Old faithful. You don't think twice about getting on a 767. Well, in 1983, this was a very new aircraft. And as we know from reports of new aircraft... There are always some kind of growing pains. There are parts and pieces of the aircraft that aren't as durable as they should be, aren't as reliable as they should be, but they don't always cause the aircraft to be unflyable or cause the aircraft to be dangerous in any way. One of these problems was the fuel quantity indicator sensor basically your gas gauge early 767s had a high high failure rate of these gas gauges and once they failed they would not have parts to replace them something everybody can be familiar with especially in this day and age a brand new vehicle or a brand new transportation device of some kind i guess they're all vehicles you get it there's something wrong and they just don't have the parts well that was the case in 1983 they just didn't have the parts to fix these planes now aircraft people among us will know well if you don't have a gas gauge you just stick the tank and that's exactly what they were doing They were measuring the tank with a drip stick. Then, 
entering it into the navigation computer of how much was in there. The navigation computer would say, yep, you got enough gas for the trip. Take off. Well, there was a little bit of a problem with that with the 767. The 767 was the first plane Boeing made and the first plane in the Air Canada fleet that needed its gasoline fuel to be entered into the computer in kilograms rather than pounds. The ground crews all were used to dealing with pounds. The pilots, even though they were trained, were used to dealing with pounds. Everybody was used to dealing with pounds. So what the result was, was the plane took off carrying 45% of the fuel they thought they had. They only had 45% of their fuel load. Therefore, the aircraft ran out of fuel halfway on its flight from Montreal to Edmonton. Halfway from Montreal to Edmonton, this flight ran out of gas. Ironically, in Edmonton, they actually had a replacement part for the fuel gauge. They were just taking the plane there to get it fixed, along with a load of passengers. So, they're flying across, and... They don't know they have don't have enough gas. As I mentioned earlier, they put a dipstick in, a dripstick. And a dripstick measures how much gas is in your tank. And depending on the type of aircraft, you can then calculate the number of centimeters to liters. And then from liters, you then calculate it to kilograms. But they did their calculation with the density figure for jet fuel in pounds per liter. But the refueler put it in as kilograms. Hold on, back up. Okay, now you can see how this easily gets, gets mistaken. So they did the calculation in pounds per liter. plane needed it done in kilograms to liter so this is the first all metric aircraft and it was new to the fleet it was out of gas so while cruising over red lake ontario at about forty-one thousand feet the aircraft's cockpit warning systems went off fuel pressure problems on one side of the aircraft The pilots, being competent pilots, assumed that a fuel pump had failed because they had enough gas. They knew they did. They filled up before they left. So the pilots turned off the alarm. And they prepared for a one-engine landing. A few seconds later, the fuel pressure alarm sounded on the right engine. This caused the per pilots to immediately divert to go to Winnipeg rather than Edmonton. Once the left engine failed, the pilots began preparing for a single engine landing. Now, they thought it was a fuel pump still at this gauge, 
and the 767 when a fuel pump fails can gravity feel gravity feed there we go i can say that word gravity feed an engine so they were okay we'll restart the engine we'll prepare for one and then the other engine goes out and the warning system goes with the all engines out sound this is not a sound that anybody wants to hear in a cockpit and flying with all injured engines out was not ever expected to happen so it hadn't been covered in the training there was also the problem that the 767 was one of the first airliners to include an completely electronic flight instrument suite and operated on the electricity generated by the jet engines uh, with both engines stopped, the system went completely dead, and all of the screens went blank. There were a few basic battery-powered emergency flight instruments. Fortunately, the backups were sufficient information to land, but didn't include the speed indicator that could be used to determine how far the aircraft could glide. So they didn't have their airspeed. So fortunately, they did think ahead for the hydraulic systems because the hydraulic systems were used so that pilots could move the control surfaces. The control surfaces on the 767 are so large that the pilots can't move them by themselves. So there is a ram air turbine on the plane that drops out and from a compartment and drives a hydraulic pump to supply hydraulic power so there is a little turbine that can pop out a little compartment that'll power those flight controls in the event of an emergency so now we've got two pilots with a dead plane and they were planning to divert to winnipeg they were descending through thirty-five thousand feet when the second engine shut down they started going through the emergency checklist for flying the engine with both engines out and they found out that there was no checklist available for no engines out now the captain captain pearson was an experienced glider pilot so he was familiar with flying techniques that are never used in commercial flights to have the maximum range and the largest choice of possible landing areas he needed to fly at an optimum glide speed, make his best guess to the speed, and he flew the aircraft around 220 knots. And then they were calculating whether they could reach Winnipeg. They were looking, and it didn't look good. And at this point, they found a closed Air Force base called RCIF Station Gimli. Hence the name the Gimli Glider. And... They decided that the air traffic controller finds this and decides that this would be a great place to put the plane down. It's closer than Winnipeg. The miles are closer. They can make it. So without main power, the pilots use gravity drop to lower the landing gear and lock it into place. This commits them because it slows the aircraft down that there's no chance of making Winnipeg at this point. The main gear lock-in position, the nose wheel did not. 
Um, so this was a problem, but it turned out actually for the best. As the plane approached the runways, the they were a little bit surprised. You see, nobody had told them that the runway at Gimli had been turned into a drag strip. And not only had they turned it into a drag strip, there was a sanctioned drag race going on that day by the Winnipeg Sports Car Club. <laughs> and the area around the runway was full of cars and campers. Part of the decommissioned runway was being used to stage the race. They were committed. So they start coming in. Now, mind you, also, this aircraft is coming in dead. There are no engines. So there's no noise on the approach. So what little warning they would have had the people racing their cars, they didn't. Fortunately, the races had been closed for the day. The track was closed. They were wrapping up. This was late in the evening. Everything was wrapping up. However, there were two young boys out on their bicycles riding up and down the runway because that seemed like a good idea at the time. And the pilots see these kids... And this is a silent plane. These kids have no idea what's coming up behind them, that a plane is landing. So the plane all of a sudden comes out of the sky, and the boys were close enough that the pilot could see the terror on their face as they realized a really large aircraft was coming down on top of them, and the plane lands. Now, there are just a few things that really lucked out. I mentioned earlier, the front landing gear did not lock into position. That actually helped because there was a guardrail installed down the center of the runway to, as part of its transition into a drag race track. And because the gear was not locked, it didn't have a chance to hit that guardrail and bounce the plane off in one direction or another. And it was collapsed, and it went back into its well. And so then the nose just glanced across the top of the guardrail and then went into the ground, scraped along the ground. This additional friction helped slow the airplane down because, again, even though there was the ramjet for the hydraulics, and that included the brakes, as the plane slows down, that ramjet pumps less hydraulic fluid because it's a ramjet. They managed to stop the plane, and it came to a final stop 17 minutes after running out of fuel. There were no serious injuries among the 61 passengers or anybody on the ground, and there were some minor injuries as people exited the aircraft via the slides, which were not long enough to accommodate the plane because it was nose down because the landing gear wasn't there. So the slides in the rear of the plane weren't long enough and the slides in the front of the plane weren't working. So there was a little bit of a drop and um, that was it. Now, also, this being a decommissioned airbase, there was no emergency personnel on hand. or So they thought this was fortuitous that the race was going on because... There were course workers there equipped with fire extinguishers to put out car fires who were able to put out a minor fire amongst the brakes of the nose wheel and prevent any serious damage or injury. 
So, of course, there was an investigation by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the Canadian version of the FAA, and their report praised the pilots, the flight crew, the cabin's crew, for making sure that everybody got there safely. It noted that Air Canada neglected to assign clear and uh, direct rules for calculating fuel loads when the fuel gauges were broken. And it also had the problem of this was a crew of two and the regs for the time most aircraft had crews of three was that the flight engineer, the third crew member, pilot, co-pilot, and flight engineer, was the one who calculated the fuel loads, so the pilot and co-pilot weren't used to doing it because they never had to. They always had a flight engineer. This was some of the perils in the learning experiences of flying a brand new aircraft. So this ended as good as it could. This ended... It was an air disaster without the disaster. But there were definitely some lessons learned. And with very new aircraft, sometimes those lessons are deadly. Fortunately, this time, they were not. So that wraps up today's podcast. I hope you all tune in next time when I find another interesting piece of history.